0: Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm KJ Kumaladun. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Dr. David Cooper examines the third nuclear age between disarmament and Armageddon. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing Dr. Cooper today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President.
1: I'd like to welcome everyone here today and those listening to us on the stations of Maine Public Radio. This is the 442nd meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations. Today's meeting comes to you from the Elks Event Center in Rockland, Maine, and I'm George Look, President of the Forum. The Midcoast Forum was founded in 1983. Each month, we invite a foreign affairs expert to speak and answer questions on an issue critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. Audios of past forum talks, information about upcoming forum programs, and information on how to become a forum member are available on our website at midcoastforum.org. We're pleased to have Dr. David Cooper with us today to speak on the third nuclear age between disarmament and Armageddon. I often hear, just as a personal note, I often hear that nuclear weapons are a thing of the past and we don't need to worry about them anymore. But I think the war in Ukraine, Putin's veiled threat to use nuclear weapons, and his placing Russia's massive nuclear force on increased alert all emphasize that the threat of nuclear annihilation is still very, very real. David's talk couldn't be timelier, I believe. Dr. David Cooper is very recently retired as the James V. Forrestal Professor of National Security Affairs at the US Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, where he previously served for eight years as the chair of the Department of National Security Affairs. Before transitioning to academia, he served for almost two decades as a career policy official in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, including as Director of Strategic Arms Control Policy, Director of Nonproliferation Policy, and Senior Director for Homeland Security Integration. His areas of expertise include nuclear strategy, arms control and disarmament, nonproliferation of weapons of mass destruction, multilateral negotiations, homeland security, and international relations theory. And he's written fairly extensively uh, in all of these areas. His recent books include Decision Making in American Foreign Policy, Translating Theory into Practice, published by the Cambridge University Press in 2019, and Arms Control for the Third Nuclear Age Between Disarmament and Armageddon, published by the Georgetown University Press last fall. David, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the Mid-Coast Forum.
2: Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. And uh, George, to be welcomed uh, by you is a humbling experience. Uh, George, uh, together with his wife Karen, uh, for uh, those of you who don't know, uh, they uh, together uh, have as much or more experience in this nuclear realm uh, as anyone alive today. Uh, so uh, it, is, uh, it is really a pleasure uh, to be here. And George, uh, George mentioned that we were colleagues, by which he means he was my boss. So. <laughs> so my theme today is that with the return of great power geostrategic competition, nuclear weapons matter again. As the Western world reacts to naked Russian aggression against its Western friendly neighbor, Ukraine, and fears continue about the eventual prospect of Chinese aggression against its Western friendly neighbor, Taiwan, the threat of a direct military confrontation between the United States and another major nuclear power seems more thinkable today than at any time since the darkest hours of the Cold War, arguably more so. So in my recent book that George mentioned, Arms Control for the Third Nuclear Age, I argue that the world is moving into a perilous and unprecedented third nuclear age. Uh, Having relegated strategic nuclear competition to the back burner of history for uh, three decades now, the United States and its allies suddenly will now need to relearn how to use nuclear deterrence to prevent aggression while at the same time avoiding the risk of escalation to nuclear war with another major nuclear power. I argue that as a nation, we are politically, militarily, and even conceptually unprepared for this challenge. I also argue that just because we ducked a nuclear bullet in the Cold War, we should not find much reassurance in that. Uh, one of the reasons uh, George mentioned uh, that there's a prevailing sentiment that nuclear weapons are sort of uh, a, a bygone threat from a bygone world order, is it, it's true. It, it's true. I mean, the Cold War was when we worried about nuclear weapons and then it ended and, and, and that faded and, and new challenges came along. But we are now facing the unknown of a tripolar nuclear arms race. The first such thing in history in which the United States, Russia, and China are all competing. As I'll delve into a bit more shortly, uh, these are truly uncharted waters. Uh, everything we think we know about nuclear weapons, deterrence, coercion, etc., everything that we think we know is based on a very short, finite history from two of the world's most stable periods, the frozen, bipolar stalemate of the Cold War, and then the subsequent, what we academics call, unipolar moment of the post-Cold War world where the United States essentially uh, was unrivaled uh, in power. So we can say, yes, you know, the history of nuclear use is that it hasn't been used, uh, but at the same time, uh, other than in World War II, obviously, but it's never been used in a, in a nuclear exchange, um, That's a very short history. It is, I would argue, sobering to remember that nuclear history is within living memory. And living memory is just the blink of history's eye. So let me step back for a moment and explain what I mean by the third nuclear age and why I think that it will be so different and so dangerous. The first nuclear age was the Cold War. It was born in the thermonuclear and missile technology revolutions of the 1950s, in which an all-out nuclear arms race between the United States and Soviet Union emerged as the locus of a multi-generational confrontation between Washington and Moscow and their respective allies. This was both a quantitative arms race, with each side eventually uh, deploying tens of thousands of nuclear weapons, And also, and in some ways, more importantly, a technology race, uh, focusing in particular on new delivery systems and defenses against them. At that time, there was widespread and urgent public understanding that the risk of escalation to a general nuclear war, whether by accident, miscalculation, or misadventure, posed an existential threat to the survival of human civilization. During the Cold War, with neither side willing to let the other achieve a decisive nuclear edge, but with little realistic prospects for eliminating nuclear weapons through disarmament, it was mutual deterrence that was the name of the game to stave off catastrophe. The calculation was that no one would use nuclear weapons for fear of what the other side could and would do in response. Mutual assured destruction was not just a condition it was a goal. Indeed, I would argue it was the primary policy goal of U.S. national security policy. Then came the sudden and unexpected end of the Cold War, and this ushered in what has widely become known in academic circles as a second nuclear age, in which the nuclear threat it, excuse me, in which the threat of an of a all-out nuclear war between the rival superpowers receded and the focus turned to smaller, albeit possibly more likely, nuclear threats, particularly from hostile regional states like North Korea, Iran, and Iraq. Rather than deterring Russia, the name of the game in the second nuclear age became nuclear nonproliferation. Even as Washington and Moscow worked cooperatively to reduce their legacy Cold War nuclear arsenals through a series of bilateral arms reduction treaties. Far from being seen as a threat during the second nuclear age, we actually saw Russia and China as partners in preventing proliferation. Not always good partners, but partners nonetheless. But that is all over. That is all over and it has been probably since at least 2014 it's just been a slow realization uh, that that really has not been the case since 2014 Uh, the United States genuinely did not want to have nuclear rivalry and a nuclear competition with either of these countries but it's the old saying we might not have wanted to have a nuclear rivalry but if others feel that nuclear weapons contribute to their national security uh, and help them, uh, then that is out of our control. And the fact of the matter is uh, that we have been in an arms race uh, with uh, Russia and China Uh, for at least the past decade. We simply haven't been racing uh, in, in that arms race. Um, but, but Russia and China have been very clearly uh, engaging in uh, a strategic modernization and expansion program, uh, which has, has been very clearly uh, aimed at making their nuclear forces uh, as relevant uh, as possible. So the third nuclear age that we are entering promises to combine two threats. Great power, nuclear rivalry, and further proliferation among smaller states, both in new and unpredictable ways. In other words, the third nuclear age is not going to move us away from the threats of the first nuclear age or away from the threats of the second nuclear age. It's going to combine these two threats. And that's something we've never faced before. It's something, again, going back to my work, conceptually unprepared, it's something we've never really thought through uh, in any meaningful way Uh, Before, So this time, the United States faces not one, but two nuclear rivals who may or may not begin to make common cause against us. And it is possible, even increasingly likely, that nuclear proliferation may actually spread beyond the likes of North Korea or Iran. To borrow an analogy from the scholar Stephen Simbawa, today, we are like villagers who have been living in the shadow of a dormant volcano for so long that we are shocked to wake up one morning and find that it is belching smoke. The volcano never went away, we just forgot that it was a volcano. We just forgot that it was an existential threat. This third nuclear age will center around what a prominent Russian strategist calls the Big Triangle. What is the Big Triangle? The Big Triangle is a tripolar nuclear competition between the United States, Russia, and China in which each of these three countries is competing against both of the others. Because although Russia and China are increasingly making common political cause against us, for now at least, they also remain nuclear competitors. What do I mean by this? Well, put bluntly, each of the three countries in the triangle is targeting the other two. How do you know if you have a nuclear competitor? Well, they're targeting you with their nuclear weapons. Um, And at this point, within the big triangle, you have three countries that are each targeting the other two countries. However, the reality is a bit more complex. The Third Nuclear Age is not just a tripolar nuclear competition, it's actually, and again, in academic jargon, a multipolar nuclear competition, with France and Britain also arrayed against Russia and possibly China, and India also arrayed against China, within then Pakistan also arrayed against India. So this isn't even... Notice I'm not even talking about North Korea or Iran. I'm, I'm putting them aside as minor nuclear powers for now. Unlike the straightforward dyad arms race, this amounts to a complex interactive web of adversarial nuclear relations. In other words, there's a series of dyads. And the problem with that is, if we think about deterrence, if we think about deterrence, this is where we're really entering into unprecedented uh, waters. The great British academic strategist, Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, once explained Cold War deterrence by comparing it to the standoff in a classical Western movie between two quick-draw gunfighters, As long as neither thought they had the drop on the other, as long as neither thought they had an advantage, then neither would dare to draw. This is, in a sense, stable nuclear deterrence in a nutshell. Unfortunately, we may come to wax nostalgic for the stalemate face-off of the two Cold War gunfighters. Today's emerging nuclear landscape, this web of rivalries is starting to look more like a different analogy from a different Western movie, and that's the Mexican standoff. You know the scene where everyone in the saloon, someone draws and everyone leaps up at once and everyone has a gun and everyone's drawing, but no one is quite sure who's on whose side, and everybody's covering everybody, um, and everybody's being covered, and people are moving around because there are guns pointed at everyone. And the clear implication is one shot by anyone could lead to a ripple effect bloodbath. That's the nuclear landscape that I would put to you that we are, we are moving into. Uh, a landscape where if China does something that alarms, you know, uh, India, then... India might do something, but Russia may be alarmed by that in turn, or the U.S. may be alarmed by that in turn. And, and suddenly it's that Mexican standoff uh, where even if you have a situation, and, and even, I mean, this is, this is a very uh, palpably real scenario today. If, if you have things getting tense between Russia and the United States, um, expect to see at some point uh, China become alarmed. Um, Because again in that big three triangle if two people are are doing something the third is going to get alarmed if China gets alarmed expect India to get alarmed, etc, etc. So As complicated as nuclear deterrence is with three major nuclear powers and a few variously aligned secondary powers things could actually get much worse by the way, my students at the War College used to call me Doctor Doom, so I, I, I apologize. This is this is not cheery stuff, um, n- nonetheless. Uh, thing, things could get much more worse. Could get much worse. Certainly, much more complex if currently non-nuclear major powers, including perhaps American allies, decide that they need their own nuclear weapons in an increasingly envenomed nuclear landscape. Inconceivable only a few years ago today, there are now open debates about the need to go nuclear in countries ranging from Australia to Japan to South Korea to Germany to Turkey to Saudi Arabia. The shock of Russia's Ukraine invasion, and even more so President Putin's none too subtle nuclear saber rattling to intimidate NATO countries against intervening, is only likely to feed such debates. All the more so when one considers that Ukraine itself was once a major nuclear weapons power when it became independent, and that it gave up its nuclear weapons in return for a concrete promise from Moscow and Washington to safeguard its sovereignty and territorial integrity. It is not far-fetched to think that some countries may be thinking that, in hindsight, Ukraine may have miscalculated in entrusting its security to the promises of others. Could this calculus include NATO and Asian allies of the United States who are now relying on American promises of extended deterrence under the American nuclear umbrella? I would argue it could, especially as as our allies have been given good reasons in the last Two administrations to doubt American nuclear guarantees. All right, so I'm painting a pretty dire picture here. Maybe I'm being too alarmist. There can be little argument that great power nuclear rivalry is back with a vengeance. But so what? After three decades of post Cold War relative nuclear calm, isn't worrying about nuclear war? kind of an old-fashioned thing. I mean, it almost seems quaintly old-fashioned to worry about nuclear war. Don't we have more urgent, modern worries looming today, like climate change, or a massive cyber attack, or a new and even deadlier pandemic? Unfortunately, yes, we do, on all counts and more. But while these and other emerging threats are all too real, whether we like it or not, we are headed back to the future, where the ultimate threat to human civilization is still the disaster of a general nuclear war between major nuclear powers. Except that this time, just to repeat myself, the United States and its allies face not one, but two major nuclear rivals, who are each building up their own nuclear arsenals and increasingly there is a risk that they are making common cause against us. Put bluntly, America is not a dominant player in terms of its strategic nuclear forces for Cold War II in the way that we were in Cold War I and certainly not in the way that we were in the post-Cold War order. America, America has not had a lot of experience at not having the luxury of being the dominant player in a while. Today's nuclear technology race, unfortunately, is also anything but old-fashioned. China and Russia are both outpacing the United States in developing new nuclear delivery systems that could conceivably destabilize the nuclear balance. Maneuverable hypersonic missiles could soon decrease warning time of an attack and render existing missile defense systems all but useless. China and Russia are both ahead in hypersonic missiles and Russia for its part avows to use them as strategic nuclear delivery systems. Russia is also uh, developing a true doomsday weapon, uh, the nuclear powered and armed Poseidon autonomous uh, torpedo, dubbed by some as the tsunami apocalypse torpedo, Russia plans to arm these with massive-yield nuclear warheads, larger-yield nuclear warheads than have ever uh, been deployed uh, in in history. Uh, And the purpose is for these warheads to create radioactive tsunamis to inundate America's coastal industrial and population uh, centers. Uh, Russia is also developing the new Satan-2 intercontinental ballistic missile, the largest strategic missile ever which is said to carry enough independently-targeted warheads for a single satan II missile to obliterate the entire state of Texas or the entire country of France. By the way, these are not new developments. These are systems that are coming online today because Russia started developing them a decade ago. So we have been watching in slow motion uh, one of the great mistakes that I think people have made, particularly about President Vladimir Putin, is to dismiss what he says, um, because he will say something, and people are kind of like, that sounds that sounds kind of crazy. He, he can't really mean that. Um, and yet, in President Putin's decades in office, what we have seen is far more often than not, he is signaling actual intention, and then goes and does what he says he's going to do. Uh, President Putin uh, basically said, uh, starting in around 2007, uh, that unless the INF Treaty was expanded to include China, uh, a rival uh, of Russia, that the, the Russians could not live with that treaty uh, forever. Uh, President Putin said that if the US continued to pursue missile defense, even if it was against North Korea, um, that he would feel uh, it necessary to develop systems that could circumvent that missile defense. And all of this is, is really coming uh, to fruition. These new weapons are not just terrifyingly destructive, but also, and again, I would say more importantly, they threaten to undermine stable mutual deterrence. For example, hypersonic missiles would be the ideal first strike weapon. Uh, they are expected to be highly precise, difficult to detect, and present, uh, and impossible to defend against. Uh, They are also likely to be dual use systems used for both nuclear and conventional roles. That means that a strike by hypersonic missiles could be easily misperceived. It could be a conventional strike, but no one would know whether it was conventional or nuclear uh, until the, the systems came in. That is what we in the deterrence business call inherently a destabilizing concern. I would go as far as to say that hypersonic missiles could be as revolutionary today as the advent of intercontinental ballistic missiles armed with MIRVs, multiple independently targeted warheads, uh, were in the 1960s and 70s. In the United States, it has become axiomatic that no one can win a nuclear war, and consequently that nuclear arms racing is futile and that the role of nuclear weapons should be minimized. Uh, This has been a bipartisan consensus uh, basically for uh, most of the post-Cold War uh, period. But do our rivals also believe this? It is not clear that President Putin at least does if we are to judge uh, by his current actions and by the amount of treasure that Russia is putting into its strategic nuclear forces relative to the size of its economy. Russia is making huge sacrifices to invest in nuclear modernization. One reason for this may be that Russia is now ahead of the United States. So in that sense, uh, this investment is paying off. Uh, We're seeing the struggles Russia has had and continues to have in modernizing its conventional forces. Uh, But at this point, uh, both in terms of size and modernization, uh, Russia is the world's largest and most formidable uh, nuclear power. Uh, And this uh, includes, in particular, Moscow's immense advantage in tactical nuclear weapons intended for nuclear warfighting short of a strategic nuclear war. Uh, And I would argue that it it seems, that uh, President Putin at least, uh, seems to believe that this nuclear warfighting advantage does give him a leverage. Meanwhile, new questions are arising about whether China, recently revealed to be building hundreds of new missile silos, is making a dash for nuclear parity with the United States. Uh, Beijing has already demonstrated that it has the technological capability to do so, and it certainly has the economic wherewithal. Uh, Whether this is actually its intent remains to be seen, and there is a a lively and active debate, uh, both within the academic and the policy communities, about what's really going on uh, with China. Uh, however, uh, whereas even uh, a few years ago, the idea that China might be making a dash for parity or perhaps even superiority uh, was viewed as sort of an outlier, uh, this is now the US military's uh, default assumption uh, at this point based on statements by senior military uh, officials. I mean, the, the default assumption now uh, is that China uh, is on course over the next decade uh, to, to move into a position uh, as, as truly the third major uh, nuclear power uh, within that uh, big triangle. If that does happen, it, it will be the most significant geostrategic realignment uh, in the next uh, decade uh, or two. I, I, if I sound alarmist in all this, frankly, it's because I think the emerging situation is profoundly alarming. Uh, I believe that the third nuclear age poses the gravest threat to national and international security that we have faced in decades and and perhaps ever in in our history. Uh, It deserves urgent attention and it urgently needs to be addressed. But how? The traditional hawkish, hawkish, excuse me, solution to all this, the traditional hawkish solution is to try to achieve a strategic edge, meaning to arms race to security. The traditional dovish solution is to negotiate disarmament to drastically reduce or eliminate nuclear weapons altogether. But I would argue that neither of these approaches are likely to work under present domestic or international political circumstances. Far from arms racing to strategic dominance, the United States will be hard pressed to preserve its position as we struggle to modernize our obsolete nuclear forces. Uh, We've neglected nuclear modernization for the entire three decades of the Cold War, uh, whereas China and Russia have not, China and Russia are at the end of their nuclear modernization cycle. We are just at the beginning. Uh, moreover, nuclear modernization is no longer an option of Do we want shiny, spiffy new nuclear forces, uh, or should we just live with kind of you know the used Ford in the driveway for a little while? We are now at the point where we either modernize or we cease to be a nuclear power. Um, because we have put it off pretty much for as long as you could put it off. The Ford in the driveway is, is not going to last us um, for the next 20 years. So the Hawks are right that we do need to arms race, but realistically, the best we can expect from this is to hold second place, and in my view, even that outcome is no means assured and will require a lot of bipartisan political uh, consensus uh, and, and, frankly, uh, a lot of uh, improvement in our acquisition processes uh, to move our modernization program of record forward. Meanwhile, Russia, and even more so China, show absolutely no interest in pursuing serious disarmament. And there is little reason to think that this is going to change anytime soon. Doves may call for disarmament, but the only disarmament offer on offer for now is unilateral. So what is to be done? Is there any alternative? In my book, I argue yes, there is. Rather than trying to prevail in an uncontrolled arms race, the Hawks' solution, or else relying on hope against hope for a global nuclear disarmament breakthrough, the Doves' solution, I argue that the United States should return to its Cold War playbook and pursue a competitive brand of arms control designed for the more modest and limited purpose of stabilizing mutual deterrence and putting in some guardrails around this nuclear arms race that we are moving into with these two uh, with these two rivals, uh, this would entail essentially a return to arms racing, but not to achieve dominance. Instead, we must show that we are willing to arms race enough to not fall behind, or at least not to fall behind uh, too much. Uh, particularly in terms of fielding new technologies while at the same time pressing for plausible new arms control arrangements that stabilize a tripolar nuclear balance. In other words, we need to arms race enough to gain leverage for negotiating an arms control alternative and convincing our competitors that that arms control alternative is in their interest relative to continuing an endless arms race. This prescription that I'm offering won't be popular in today's hyperpartisan partisan and ideologically riven domestic political environment. Doves will recoil at this notion of arms racing towards arms control, seeing it as simply making the problem worse. By contrast, hawks will bridle at the notion of a self-restraining brand of arms racing, preferring an all-out effort to achieve strategic dominance. For a hawk, if you're going to arms race, you're in it to win it. For a dove, you shouldn't be arms racing under any circumstances, that's just bad. So this is not going to be an easy sell or a popular sell. But if the Cold War experience teaches us anything, it is that the need to find a path to a durable bipartisan approach to managing the nuclear risks that lie ahead, something along these lines, the hawks are not going to prevail in our current political environment. The doves are not going to prevail in our current political environment. And by the way, China and Russia aren't likely to cooperate with the outcomes of either. So we need to find a middle way. Again, I argue the best chance for this is to revive a hard-nosed brand of arms control designed not to win an arms race or to achieve a world without nuclear weapons, but rather to stabilize deterrence. The volcano is rumbling. The Mexican standoff is not likely to be stable. The world as we know it really can end in a few hours. If you haven't been worrying about nuclear war, or at least not overly lately, I'm sorry to say this is probably a good time to start worrying. As I make clear in the book, Reviving a deterrence model of arms control and a deterrence-centric approach to US nuclear policy is going to be a long and difficult process, and just because it worked in the Cold War doesn't mean it's gonna work in this new landscape. And we're not gonna be able to do it the same way we did it in the Cold War. Again, the Cold War were those two gunfighters, A tense situation, but a pretty straightforward one. The Mexican standoff situation, this is going to require a lot of reconceiving how we do this, but we need to start trying to get our heads around how that might work. With nuclear dangers gathering and the solutions being pushed by hawks on the right and doves on the left unlikely to work, this middle course may be the best chance to avoid a catastrophe beyond imagination. So I'm not going to attempt here to delve into the nitty gritty details of what a new tripolar arms control arrangement might look like. Uh, If you're interested, I hope you buy the book and and read about it uh, in detail. Uh, But for now, why don't I pause uh, at at sort of the half hour mark, because what I really wanna do is allow enough time uh, to turn this into a uh, a, a back and forth discussion. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, David. Uh, It's uh, hard things to listen to that's for sure. Um, while we collect questions from, from uh, the audience here, I always want to start out with a question of my own and my question after writing a bunch of them down is uh, is there any chance of, of arms control time in the future given what Russia's now done in Ukraine? When do you get them back to the table under any conditions?
2: I, uh, so this is going to sound very strange uh, given the talk I've just given. But I actually count myself as an arms control optimist. (laughs) The the caveat to that is we as a nation need to start thinking of this as a long game. We think about the golden age of arms control, uh, the INF Treaty, the START Treaty, where the arms race suddenly stopped going this way, stopped, and then started decreasing. That was a decades-long process to get there. And it did not happen because no one could figure out how to come up with a nifty treaty. It didn't happen because neither side thought it was in their interest to make the compromises demanded by the other side until they did. And so my argument is we need to start a process. And frankly, right now, uh, Russia thinks it's in the catbird seat. So Russia's unlikely to be interested in negotiating limits on its nuclear forces. It has an advantage in strategic forces and it has an overwhelming advantage in sub-strategic forces. So it's, it's very unlikely that it would be willing to do that. China China, feels like it's in third place and either it's not gonna negotiate from a position of weakness or it's, it's moving forward and it wants to do so in an uncontrolled way. I mean, the Chinese mantra and arms control has certainly been um, uh, a little disingenuous, but you can kind of see their, their perspective and their perspective is you guys have all this and we have less so you keep coming down and when you get close to us we'll tell you and then we'll then we'll be happy to negotiate now the problem is China's never even been willing to reveal what their forces are like so you know our response has been something like oh how much less and the Chinese have basically responded well don't worry less we'll we'll tell you so all of this is not promising for getting an agreement on arms control however that doesn't mean that we don't want to start laying the conditions in place, getting a process going, and recognizing, again, when I say a competitive brand of arms control. Um, so one of the, one of the uh, articles uh, that George shared is, I argued that we, we are currently debating whether we should deploy a new nuclear cruise missile uh, to our naval forces. I argue we probably should. We probably should because China has an overwhelming advantage in intermediate-range missiles. Uh, Russia has an advantage in sub-strategic missiles, and we don't have anything. I don't believe that we can even begin to have a meaningful arms control process until we start essentially incentivizing our rivals. Now, in that sense, you could call me a a hawkish arms control uh, person, and, and, and that's fair enough. I do think over time, George, the answer to your question may come to what I presented as a negative, but it could be a positive. And that is, if we truly get into an uncontrolled arms race, and if it looks like Russia or China, or particularly Russia and China, look like they're kind of winning, that is the thing most likely to spook U.S. allies into thinking we may need our own nuclear weapons. We may not be able to rely on the United States to guarantee our defense if at this point it's looking like they're at a disadvantage. The fact of the matter is all of the countries that could become major nuclear powers relatively quickly are friendly with us and unfriendly to either Russia or China. As a matter of fact, a nuclear Germany from a historical And political-military point of view is the sum of all Russian fears. Just as a nuclear Japan is the same for China. So I believe in effect, and this is, again, I'm taking a kind of hawkish geostrategic point of view, uh, the biggest leverage we may have is to basically say, you literally can't win this, because either we are going to be able to keep up with you, or if we don't, all of our friends are going to freak out, and then you're still going to lose because... Could Japan become a major nuclear power? They certainly could, and they could do it very quickly. Could Germany become a major nuclear power? It would take them a lot longer, but they certainly could, um, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Uh, There's a tremendous number of questions here on uh, related basically to uh, escalation control and and, uh, use of tactical weapons and all. Uh, The one I think that kind of summarizes it is currently with his tactical nuclear weapons, Putin controls the escalation ladder because we don't have many and we don't have the right kinds. Does this mean the U.S. should redevelop this capability? And if so, do we currently have the the people and the technologies around to do so?
2: I believe we should, but I believe we should in a very moderate and iterative way that, again, uh, makes clear that... This is something we would wish not to do, and would much prefer to negotiate um, balanced and 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 reasonable alternatives to. But I do think, again, the issue is not whether do does escalation dominance give you an advantage? That is something that has been debated for decades. The more frightening question in today's moment is, Does Vladimir Putin believe that escalation dominance gives you an advantage? Because, again, deterrence is made up of two entirely different but organically interrelated things. Capability and perception. Do you have the capability to do something? Does the person you're trying to deter perceive that you have that capability, and that you have the determination to use it. And the question becomes right now, does Vladimir Putin, or would China, for example, um, but let's stick with Vladimir Putin for the moment, does Vladimir Putin believe that because he has small tactical nuclear weapons uh, in, in vast numbers compared to us, does that mean that he could, if his conventional forces were really up against it, that he could initiate nuclear use on a very small scale and put us into a corner because we, for all intents and purposes, can either now launch nuclear Armageddon or back off. And this is something where who knows what's in Vladimir Putin's mind, but the fact that the capability gap and that he may perceive an intention gap is a worry, and, and that's why I think we're a little late to need, but we need to be articulating these things to ourselves. We need to have a robust alliance conversation, um, and and if there's a silver lining in what's happening now, uh, all of those things are happening in overdrive. Um, but the problem is you, you you want all these things in place before the crisis. You you don't want to have to invent your you know your escalation. Uh, theories and and your declaratory policy on the fly. Now, I mean, we're not really inventing them, but no one really, truth be told, a month ago, really thought we'd be where we are today, um, with Putin overtly uh, not just taking on uh, a full-scale total war uh, of a neighbor, but being very overt in in telling NATO uh, that, just remember, uh, you know, I, I, I have the nukes, and so you you don't want to mess with me. I mean, it's 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 been, it, it, it's been um, bracingly unambiguous uh, where we are.
1: And then kind of a follow up to that, arms control requires taxes and political will. Uh, you have to fund it. You have to have it in the long run. Uh, this doesn't no political will for this it can be seen today as the assertion by the in this question do you have a plan b i mean how do we get either the political will or the, it's been an age old problem by the way but uh,
2: so all of this nuclear deterrence or pursuing arms control alternatives it requires a durable bipartisan consensus there will always be arguments about this or that specific policy. But throughout the Cold War, we actually had a durable bipartisan consensus. It was remarkable to me, as I did the archival research for the book, the SALT process. The SALT process was all initiated in the Johnson administration, and Kissinger and Nixon came on board before the first meeting. It went seamlessly. It went seamlessly. The SALT II negotiations were initiated by Nixon, Ford lost the election. Suddenly the Carter administration came in in the middle of these talks. It went seamlessly. Everyone thinks Reagan came in and blew everything up. Reagan came in and certainly had a more hawkish vision, But in terms of the programmatics of deterrence, basically the Reagan nuclear buildup was the Carter nuclear buildup with a few tweaks uh, around the edges. It, It was essentially, I would argue, the Carter to Reagan in nuclear policy was a story of more continuity than discontinuity. We don't have anything like that right now. What we have now are we have hawks on one side and doves on the other, with a preferred solution that is not amenable to any sort of compromise, and we have, frankly, a domestic political dynamic that isn't moving towards compromise, and we have within the United States Congress, and particularly in the Senate, we no longer have senators who are deeply invested in these issues. I mean, it used to be, I I would argue, Um, And and there were hawks and doves in the Senate, but it doesn't matter. They they were deeply invested in these issues and they could work together to try to figure things out. I would argue that if if I had to come up with the most meaningful figures shaping uh, U.S. nuclear policy uh, during the Cold War, um, it it might not be Henry Kissinger. Um, It would probably be Senator Scoop Jackson, uh, a hawkish Democrat who, who basically made this something of a mission. We need senators to step up and, on both sides of the aisle and, and start investing in these issues. We need nuclear policy experts from both sides of the aisle, um, and, and we haven't had that. Uh, again, if there's a sunny, optimistic thing in our current situation, I believe that the Ukraine situation uh, may be a shock to our domestic system enough Uh, that we may start getting some bipartisan, how do we forge a a durable bipartisan approach? But again, uh, as I said, contrary to what you might think, um, I'm considered something of an optimist in that regard.
1: And in your uh, presentation, you talked about uh, putting guardrails that we should seek in a renewed policy of hard-nosed arms control. What are the examples of the type of guardrails you're talking about?
2: So arms control has some benefits that aren't, necessarily obvious. Um, a, a lot of times we think the benefits of arms control are, okay, we signed this treaty and it cut these systems by, by this amount. And that that's how you measure the benefits of arms control. Those are real and those are important. But some, some less appreciated aspects of arms control. One is predictability. Uh, So, for example, uh, the SALT-1 process is is widely sort of dismissed because it it didn't actually control the arms race. Everybody kept going up. But I would argue it it did some very useful things because everyone started going up within established guardrails and on timelines that everyone understood. Part of an arms race is the idea of action-reaction dynamics. You do something and it freaks me out, so I do something in response to that, but that freaks you out, and now we're we're both kind of freaking out back and forth, whereas in an arms control process, you know what you're gonna do and why and how you're going to do it. So that that's the first thing. The second thing is, and, and this is where it really, I, I may sound like I'm coming across as as kind of a kumbaya fuzzy uh, optimist, <laughs> but in arms control there is something to be said for the, the journey is part of the destination. An arms control process that forces both sides to talk, even a failed arms control process is often a success because both sides can understand what the concerns of the others are. Both sides can understand, you know, we need you to cut these forces because that's what's most threatening to us. And the other side says, no, we won't do that because of this, or well, we would only do that if you did this. And there's an education aspect to an arms control negotiation even when it's not successful. The problem I see today is we are absent any of even those most basic guardrails, particularly with the wild card in all this, and that's China. The US and the Russians, for everything that looks pretty bad right now, kind of get each other on all this. They've been talking to each other about this for a long time. No one knows what the Chinese understand about escalation, about what would be considered escalatory, what wouldn't be considered escalatory in terms of us and vice versa. And no one knows whether the Chinese have a particularly sophisticated understanding of all this because they're relatively new to the game. So my personal view is the first guardrail would simply be getting strategic talks at a high enough level between Russia, China and the United States uh, that you had these processes starting to come into play. Again, it's very modest. It's, it's, it's not a lot, but it's more than we have right now.
1: So, you know, for a long time, Russia was going along with this on a, a step-by-step approach uh, to nuclear disarmament. Um, why did Russia reverse course and kind of abandon the process?
2: Well, uh, part of the answer to that is, I think, a cop-out but it's an important point. Arms control is often thought of as leading all this stuff. Arms control almost never leads any of this stuff. Politics leads it. Arms control follows the politics. Arms control didn't end the Cold War. The conditions of the Cold War allowed arms control. Why did Putin suddenly abandon arms control? I think it was because Putin, for whatever reason, uh, made a larger strategic decision Uh, that the project that Russia, including under him had been engaged on to sort of uh, move into a cooperative relationship with the West was no longer in Russia's interest. I mean, at some point, uh, President Putin clearly decided uh, that he, uh, that that Russia and that he would rather uh, be a competitor with the West than, than move into a cooperative relationship. That's a whole larger political thing, and I'm not a, a Russian expert who can explain when that happened and why, but I think what happened was essentially the arms control and the nuclear policy just followed natural suit. Um, now, you could blame a little bit of arms control. A lot of blame is put at the withdrawal of the ABM treaty uh, by the George W. Bush administration and that you know Russia just decided, okay, um, fine, we're... We know what to do about that, and we'll now move into uh, a more aggressive stance. But to be honest, that isn't really credible to me. I think we're confusing symptoms um, with with underlying causes. Uh, the relationship with with Russia went sour um, at, at some point in in the 2000s, and then soured, you know, sort of by the late Bush administration. Things were were clearly sour. The Georgia uh, conflict um, was a real shock, and then. You know, by the early Obama administration, uh, things were moving into you know clearly very bad political dynamics, and after 2014, you know, quite poisonous political dynamics, and that really hasn't changed. Um, it, it didn't for all of the um, whatever that was with President Trump and President Putin. Uh, that didn't really change. Um, we've we've had a very uh, negative relationship uh, with. With Russia and who's to blame, and whether it was us pushing NATO expansion or whatnot, again, that's out of my uh, area of expertise. But all I would say is uh, I I think the arms control is a symptom of a larger deterioration uh, in relations, and that the chances to get arms control back on track is going to be part of trying to get that larger uh, relationship on track.
1: And if the curtain, if for some miraculous reason the current situation, removes Putin from power in Russia? Is that going to change things?
2: That is a big question. (laughs) I I do not. There's a larger question there. And the larger question is Russia is in a precarious geostrategic position. Russia clearly wants to be under Putin, but really under any leader. Russian will want to be an independent pole of power and will want its traditional region, uh, its traditional sphere of influence, if you will, um, to be safe uh, from its perspective uh, and, and, and whatnot. Russia is in a position now, though, where long-term, its demographic trends, its economic trends, uh, it's going to have a tough time remaining uh, sort of the, uh, the, the global power that it wishes to be. So Russia may, and now I'm looking out 10, 15, 20 years, Russia may face the choice. They are either going to need to realign themselves to the West to balance against China, or they are going to need to become a essentially uh, subordinate uh, partner to China. Um, And clearly, President Putin is trying to find a way to do neither of those. I don't think that's viable. So in a sense, and this is, I'm I'm a geostrategist, I think it almost doesn't matter uh, any Russian leader, they're going to need to throw their lot in with China or they're going to need to throw their lot in with us because they're probably not going to be able to balance uh, those two. Putin is clearly trying to now throw his lot in with China to sort of get us knocked off our pedestal, and then he'll try to you know, reset and, and become, if not a co-equal at least. And I'm not sure that's, that's really doable, but that's, that's what he's trying to do. I just don't think it's going to work.
1: Thank you very much, David. I think, you know, we'll all just think positive thoughts here, and maybe we'll get out of this. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Dr. David Cooper. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG LaDune. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.